From the production team of Elia and Alexander Salkind, the money behind the Christopher Reeve starring Superman movies, came the direct-to-syndication Adventures of Superboy. Landing on various stations in the autumn of 1988, the series managed an impressive 100-episode run across four seasons, ultimately ending up as probably the most faithful adaptation of a comic book on screen yet produced, and certainly since the Adam West Batman series. Part of this came from the realisation from Salkin Jr. that the first season, starring John Hames Newton as the Teen of Steel, was a bit shit, with the Kryptonian wannabe fighting corrupt baseball promoters and fixed basketball games rather than established comic book villains. To be fair, Salkind was a newbie to television production, and he did realise the errors of his ways fairly early on, bringing in comic book writers Mike Carling, Andy Helfer and Mark Ivania to write scripts and move the series in a clearer direction. As the first season closed, the quality had picked up slightly, but for many, the damage was done. The reputation of the show was pretty poor, and in my neck of the woods, ITV, who had bought the series hoping for a Saturday tea time hit, saw the series heckled off screen after only airing 11 episodes, with the rest of season one burned off in an early morning time slot. One really can't blame ITV, or the viewers at large. Season 1 of Superboy manages to look both horribly cheap and expensive at the same time. The flying effects and wire work are pretty astonishing, but the overall look of the series, perhaps due to being shot on the cheaper option of videotape rather than film, gives it a cheesy, made-for-Canadian telefilm feel that can't compare to the movies and belied the half-million-dollars-per-show budget Salkind has claimed the show cost to produce. Behind-the-scenes problems also had Salkin take stock of the direction of the show. He has described Star, Newton, and the actor hired to play Lex Luthor, Scott Wells, as both being complicated, and with a second season renewal, he retooled the entire series, replacing Newton with Gerard Christopher and Wells with Sherman Howard. The series' backstory was also retooled again in its second and third season, moving Clark Kent and Lana Lang, played by Stacey Haydock, and the only actor to stay with the series from beginning to end, to the Bureau of Paranormal Affairs, meaning getting Superboy into scrapes every week was a tad easier. The scripts also became more adventurous with the addition of more comic-based writers such as James DeMatteis, Denny O'Neill and Curry Bates, and featuring more comic-based villains such as Bizarro, Mr Mix's Pitlick and Metallo, as well as attracting a high quality of guest stars such as Stuart Whitman and Salome Jens as Jonathan and Martha Kent, Ray Walston, Gary Lockwood, Greg Morris, Sybil Danning and Doug McClure. Well, mostly high quality guest stars. With the series axed by ITV, my only chance to see the now-retitled The Adventures of Superboy came when satellite station Sky picked them up as schedule fillers. I was in no rush to see them, to be perfectly frank, as what I'd seen of season one was pretty terrible. However, one afternoon I happened upon an episode called The Bride of Bizarro, and I was quite impressed by how the show had developed. Changing up the actors, apart from the luminous Miss Hayduck, injecting some imagination into the scripts, and altering the premise of the show had all helped make it a better production, despite these all being things that normally cause a series to crash and burn. Sure, Gerard Christopher was older as Superboy than Chris Reeve was as Superman, 
but if I'm willing to suspend disbelief about the concept as a whole, I'm pretty sure I can let that go. Most impressive was that the series was now tackling a number of more ambitious two-part episodes, and for the most part, that's what I'll be looking at today, after the regularly scheduled playing of the opening credit theme, this one from Series 3. Rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Road to Hell was a two-part story written by Stan Berkowitz from a story by Michael Mora and Matt Uditz. It was directed by David Nutter. Stan Berkowitz went on to work with the Warner Brothers animation team and wrote a number of episodes of Batman the Animated Series, whilst David Nutter has had an incredible career directing the pilot episodes of numerous series such as Supernatural, Roswell, Without a Trace, Arrow, The Flash, Space Above and Beyond and A Return to Superboy when he helmed the pilot for Smallville. He's also helmed numerous episodes of Game of Thrones and The X-Files. It helps to get yourself into the right frame of mind for Superboy. These stories are very definitely leaning more towards the Silver and Bronze Age of comic, rather than the more serious take of such episodic outings as Smallville and Arrow. This is evident from the get-go. The episode opens with a cave boy, Super Baby, tossing snakes across woodlands and then starting a fire with his heat vision to keep warm. This was slightly confusing. Why would Super Baby have to keep warm? Anyway, two scientists are watching and note that this isn't how it should turn out. So they create a vortex that pulls Superboy to this world. This happens after Superboy rescues a stunningly beautiful redhead named Serena Smith from a car wreck. This show seemed to have a thing for stunningly beautiful redheads. Serena Smith, it turns out, is an actress, and before she can reward our caped hero by making him Superman, Superboy is pulled through the time vortex. It has to be said, Gerard Christopher fills the suit well, an astonishing replica of Reeves' movie suit, but he's not the most charismatic actor to ever inhabit the tights. Clark wakes up in a world where no one knows who he is, or more importantly, who Superboy is, so he wanders over to a scientist that has helped him before, because shit like this happens to Superboy all the time. Christopher is a little nonplussed by all this. It's a nice nod to the continuity of the series, but I can't help but think that suddenly being brought to a different world through a vortex may be a tad off-putting for most people. Jared Christopher does lighten up an awful lot as the series goes along, and he's nowhere near as bad an actor as the guy playing Dr. Winger, who is the scientist that Superboy goes to see. This guy is absolutely terrible, coming across more amdram than professionally trained. The scientist isn't really much in the way of help, to be honest, so Clark has to deduce for himself what's going on. His first big clue is that nobody at the office, or the bureau, really understands or knows who he is, which confuses him slightly. He picks up a newspaper from the news vendor on the corner of the street, and it's revealed that Serena Smith was killed in the accident that Superboy saved her from. Clark pretty quickly deduces that there is no Superboy on this world although he does happen to mention a flying man to Lana Lang. As I already mentioned, Lana is played by Stacey Haydock, and she modulates and changes her performance in this episode. 
Rather than the slightly brash teen that she's playing in the regular show, on this earth, Lana is a cool, flirty, 1940s-esque femme fatale. Lana reveals that there is a rumour of a flying boy in the jungle. And could that be what Clark is talking about? Hmm. Clark is intrigued. If this flying boy is still a child, then he must have landed on Earth only a few months ago, as opposed to the 18 years ago that Superboy arrived. Still, Clark's curiosity gets the better of him, and he decides to head off in the direction that the flying boy was last seen. I was far more captivated by how distractingly gorgeous Miss Haydock is. Haydock does a very good job of playing Lana slightly differently, more adult and assured than normal. However, we'll avoid the usual parallel world questions, such as how Lana ended up working here without ever meeting Clark, and simply move on with the story. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, other parties are interested in the flying kid, namely a stuttering and meek Lex Luthor and a petite buxom blonde named Darla, played by Tracy Roberts. Clark and Lana also journey to the jungle, where Clark finds a red cape. Clark and Lana don't find the child, however, because Lex and Darla have beat them to it. Clark changes to Superboy, but before he can stop them, he's shivved by Lex Luthor, who has purloined one of the crystals that was found around by where the baby was found. This gives Luthor his edge, which he previously didn't seem to have in this universe, and it turns him into an evil mad bastard. At that moment, Superboy is suddenly pulled back through dimensions by Dr. Bad Actor, who reveals that Superboy isn't breathing. To be continued. Part 1 is a pretty decent setup, and very much in the vein of the 1970s comic books. As with science fiction, superhero adaptations on TV were always behind the printed page, and the Superman comics had moved on past this at this point with the removal of Superboy from the Superman mythos. However, the comics could still explore other dimensions and what-if type stories in other venues. However, TV adaptations of superheroes either went down the silly campy route or tried to be too serious. And it's only in recent years that a comfortable balance has been found. Superboy, therefore, deserves credit for tackling outlandish comic book stories like this, but for playing them straight. There are some bad actors in part one, sure, and some comical wigs, but the actual story is played with a straight face and no small amount of charm. And as comic book fans, this kind of thing is our bread and butter, right? Speaking of bread and butter, the story becomes even more magnificently comic book with part two. Now cross-cutting between two different dimensions, one where Super Tyke is being wooed by Lex, and another where Lex is a good guy and palling around with an older Kal-El, played by Tarzan and Doc Savage actor Ron Eli. Not only is this an excellent piece of stunt casting, from Man of Bronze to Man of Steel, but Eli instantly brings the class level of the episode up. His laid-back style and casual manner really sells the idea of an older Superman, and his friendship with Lex is marvellous to behold. Sherman Howard also seems to relish playing scenes with Eli, and the pair have an easy chemistry, as evidenced in this clip. You're reading a bit slowly, aren't you? It's poetry, Lex. Sounds better in my mind when I go slow. Huh. I was afraid it was going to be crime and punishment. Remember when I made you read that? How could I forget? I was only 12 years old. It was the worst torture you could have thought of. I wasn't punishing you, Lex. I was trying to help. You showed great promise. I didn't want you to go in the wrong direction. You mean embark on a life of crime? It's a bit far-fetched, don't you think? We'll never know now, will we? Thanks to you. I owe you so much, and yet it seems all I ever do is ask for more. I need your help. 
I can't, Lux. You know that. No, no, it's got to be you. Lex, when you reach a certain age, you have to step aside, let the younger people take over. It's their world now. They'll never learn to run it if I keep interfering. I wouldn't have come here if you weren't the only one in the world who can save this patient. The only one, Lex? How can that be? The patient is you. Doc, Superman saves Superboy and owns Superboy when Superboy tries to kill the Lex that saved his life. Again, it's really cool to see the elder Superman smack down Superboy. And whilst it's slightly disappointing we don't get to see Eli in the suit, this was probably down to a rights issue, whereby Superboy and associated characters were considered a different copyright to Superman. Doc Superman explains to Superboy that there are different dimensions, multiple Earths even, where different versions of himself landed at different times. He, for example, landed after the war, our Superboy in the 70s, etc. This is a really cool way of bringing in the Earth 1 and 2 concepts to the series, and I was overjoyed when they took this direction. Doc Superman explains that it was easy to bring about a utopia on his world after World War II, with he and Lex at the forefront of the peace movement. Sadly, these ideas aren't explored as much as they might have been, a constraint of the running time. Doc Superman helps Superboy return to the world that needs him most, i.e. the one where Superbaby is being corrupted by Lex Luthor. But Superboy recognises that Superman is bored. There are literally no more worlds for him to conquer. After Superboy has disappeared through the vortex, Doc Superman asks Dr. Bad Actor what can be done to alleviate his boredom. And thus... A major plot point cometh. Over on the other planet Earth, Lex and Dahl have Super Cave Boy robbing banks, but Lex is already planning to kill the kid as he becomes more powerful. Having stepped back into the dimensional portal and now nursed back to full health, he returns to the world where Super Cave Boy is terrorising humanity. Super Cave Boy, now looking like Eric Estrada, tosses a few SWAT team members around and Clark moves in to help, but not before he's distracted by Lana. Which, let's face it, aren't we all? This Lana has figured out that Clark and Superboy are one and the same, and for the second time in this story, a hot redhead throws herself at Superboy, and he has to resist due to there being a problem he needs to solve. This pretty much sums up why I couldn't be Superboy. In addition to not having the powers, I'd have taken both these ladies up on their offers. Superboy arrives as Lex is about to stab Super Caveboy, and the kid nearly runs Lex through. Super Cave Boy stops, however, when Lex lies about loving the kid. Fortunately, this feral super brat won't be left alone, as Doc Superman suddenly appears through the time vortex and reveals he has come through the portal to show the kid the ropes. After all, what could be a bigger challenge than raising a Superboy? The episode closes with Lana and Superboy sharing a moment. Part two of this story manages to explore the themes of the first part and expand upon them slightly, but still sadly not quite enough. Poor Lana gets short shrift when she could have supported an entire subplot to herself, as could the Doc Superman plot. I would also have liked to have seen a sequel of some kind, as Ron Eli was magnificent in the very short amount of screen time that he had. He has no scenes whatsoever where he shows his superpowers, apart from backhanding Superboy, yet he owns the role so completely you believe this guy is an elder Superman. The ending is also a tad rushed, and yet this two-parter manages to achieve more through ambition, what it can't in scope, and that's no bad thing. It never hurt Doctor Who to have more imagination than money. 
Still, a more exciting ending where Superboy, Doc Superman and the kid have to team up to stop Lex would have been a wonder to behold. The next episodes that I watched were Know Thine Enemy from the fourth season, and this was written by James DeMatteis and directed by Brian Spicer. DeMatteis is a noted comic writer, having scripted the relaunch of the Justice League for DC Comics in the 1980s, and the noted Batman story Going Say. He also wrote the acclaimed Spider-Man story Craven's Last Hunt, and has numerous animated series credits to his name, such as Spider-Man, Ben 10 and Young Justice. Brian Spicer went on to be a producer and director on Parker Lewis Can't Lose and currently works on Hawaii 5 This episode opens with Lex broadcasting to the world that he has a number of nuclear devices that, after detonation in whatever fictional city they live in, will spread its fallout all over the world. Lex is quite mad here, more Joker than Lex Luthor, as you'll hear in this clip. Well. Cancel the life insurance, folks, because in six hours, you're all going to be dead. <laughs> That's right, six, count them, six hours. You see, your Uncle X just put the finishing touches on a nationwide network of nuclear devices, as they say in the bomb biz. So big, so powerful, makes a Pentagon warhead look like a cherry bomb. And guess what, folks? I'm going to set the first one off right here in Capital City. Bing, bang, boom, in the blink of an eye, you're all going to be nuclear waste. But not just you, friends and neighbors. No, 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 no. This is what you call your dirty bomb. That means the radioactive fallout from this rock and roll party is going to create a gigantic cloud of death that will drift round the globe and exterminate all life on planet Earth. Get the picture? Enjoy your final hours. I know I will. Lex, you forgot to tell them what you want. What? Your demands. Demands? You know, what they have to do so you won't set off the bombs. Don't have any demands. Just gonna do it. Wake up and smell the coffee, babe. This is the last day of the rest of your life. <laughs> With Lex broadcasting his plans to the world, Superboy starts to investigate. The opening to this episode is really quite brilliant. There's a magnificent shot introducing the character. The lighting is used to highlight Christopher's physique, and he looks particularly imposing in these opening moments. The darkness of the set set off his costume, and Spicer uses some very unusual and incredibly effective camera angles. In one notable moment, Superboy lands on the camera lens, beautifully shot on an incredibly low budget. Lana has followed Superboy, because that's what Lana does, and Superboy is located at a Luther lab with a computer disc that seems to have all of Luther's memories on it. Lana points out that this is probably a trap, and of course she's right. Superboy then finds himself in Luther's memories, learning more about his arch-foe than ever before. Duarteus tends to write deep psychological explorations of his characters, and this is no exception. Just as with his comics, he manages to get beneath the character's skin, in this case Lex's, as never before. Lex's unhappy home life, his love of his sister Lena, his arrogance and rage, it's all here. In addition to giving Sherman Howard a meaty rule to chew on, Gerard Christopher gets to play Lex in the dream scenes, and he does a great job of it, channeling his darker side admirably. 
Lex's madness is explored here with the idea that this time he has no demands. He just wants to see the world burn due to the death of the only person he's ever really cared about, his sister Lena. He has created a robot body for himself and Lena to upload their memories to, and this leaves Darla wondering where this will leave her. Lex points out that it will leave her a rusted cinder on the ground, as with the rest of the planet. In many ways, part one of this episode is everything good and bad about the series in 20 minutes. The direction and lighting are very artistic, and the script is also very good, but it's a little bit too talky for kids and not quite serious enough for adults, so it kind of occupies a curious middle ground. Part two is similar, but unlike the previous two-parter, this second part isn't as good as part one. The directional flair is still there, and in many ways this is a darker storyline than any Lois and Clark would attempt, but being trapped in one location hurts the drama. Spicer does his best, as do the actors, but the budget strings are showing. Lana manages to retrieve Superboy from the memory device, and she and Superboy figure out that Lena faked her death to get away from Lex. Whilst Lana goes after her, Superboy tracks Lex down thanks to Darla, who doesn't really want to end up as a smoking cinder on the ground. It all culminates with Lena going to Lex and telling him that he's pretty much ruined her life. This ending is again deeply affecting from a character point of view, and this may be the most fleshed out version of Luther ever seen on screen, which is why it's a shame Sherman Howard isn't more widely recognised as one of the greats. His telling Lena at the end that he never really loved her is actually quite heartbreaking, as we see the last vestiges of his humanity fall away. And of course, we know he's lying, but as such, he won't release his dirty bombs again, as just knowing Lena is alive will keep him from doing so. This two-part episode was a fascinating exploration of Superman's arch-enemy, and manages to walk that fine line between making him sympathetic while still recognising him as the bad guy. Superboy doesn't get to do a lot of super stuff in this one, but Jerry Christopher gets to act a bit, although Sherman Howard is the one that steals the show. Sadly, despite saving Superboy and solving the dilemma of the week, Lana is really only here to move the plot forward, although her and Superboy get to share a rather passionate kiss that may have led somewhere had Salkin's plans for the show panned out. After 100 episodes, Salkind wanted the series to continue as TV movies so they could spend a little longer on filming and on special effects. Sadly, these plans were curtailed as Warner started to consolidate their IPs under their umbrella once again. Warner Brothers saw no money from this series, as it was syndicated through Viacom. With the early plans underway for what would become Lois and Clark, Warner's made moves to acquire back all the super-related rights, essentially nixing future continuations of this series. Not all the great episodes were two-part shows, though. One of my favourites, simply for how much it felt like a Curry Bates Superboy issue, was A Day in the Double Life, written by Steve Berkowitz and directed by David Nutter. The opening is standard comic book fur, with Superboy catching a bunch of criminals who try to drop a van on him. It's fun, but disappointing in that Superboy doesn't actually do anything. The crooks give up without a fight. Which makes a certain amount of sense, but there could have been a humorous moment derived from Superboy walking out of the wreckage unharmed, wiping dust off his suit, and then the crooks giving up. The main plot centres around the head of the Bureau, see Dennis Jackson, being fed up with how long Clark takes to go out and buy his sandwich. He gives Clark a diary whereby Clark has to complete the 15-minute increments of the day with exactly what he got up to. Of course, this leads to problems when he has to go into action. Superboy. The story then follows Clark from being woke up at 6.45am to the end of the day at 7.10pm. This is a very light yet hugely entertaining episode. It throws up a few questions I've always had about Superman, such as does he need to sleep? But his smashing of the clock radio is a funny beat, 
especially the look on Christopher's face that implies this isn't the first time. I'm wondering if Clark is doing a lot of this simply for the diary, but surely Jackson is only interested in the stuff he does at work. As Superboy, surely he can roll out of bed, make a coffee and be at work in 10 minutes easy. He uses the post-crisis shaving method here, using a mirror and his heat vision, and I like that his superpowers don't speed up real technology, a real bugbear of mine. Sure, he uses his heat vision to start the coffee machine, but he has to wait the requisite amount of time for it to heat up. Notably, Clark also has a lot of pictures of Lana on his walls. Who can blame him? The rest of his day is spent dealing with people who seem slightly off-kilter. There's a guy in a tinfoil hat directing traffic, and whilst covering the front desk, a man brings a trash can to him thinking it's a spaceship. He also meets the log lady from Twin Peaks. All the while, he's dealing with a pair of bickering agents who clearly fancy the pants off each other, one of whom is played appropriately enough by Moonlighting's Alice Beasley. Clark is stuck processing their paperwork whilst they go off and investigate crop circles. Remember when that was a thing? Each little vignette is rather funny, with Clark being given every dirty job that comes along. There's a great scene where he's asked to file some old boxes away, a job that will take him mere minutes with his superpowers, but one that takes three hours due to having some help assigned to him. This delays him from helping when the bickering agents go missing. Clark finally manages to get away and learns they had car trouble, but a little super breath pushes them into each other's arms, diffusing the sexual tension. But what I really like about this one is the sheer exasperation Clark has at having to account for every day. The conclusion, where he predictably misses his date with Lana due to Superboy-related activities, is handled just right with a touch of melancholy and humour. Sure, you can argue that the ending is a bit of a letdown. There's a big build-up given to the fact that the agents have gone missing and their car was found burnt out, but it turns out that the engine simply exploded and they were walking down the street. Kind of a damp squib. I mean, granted, we didn't have cell phones back then, but surely there was a way of getting in touch. As I said, this is a very comic book-style plot, and I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the comics had done a story of this kind at some point over the years. But I think it's one of the few times they've actually attempted it in a Superman-slash-Superboy live-action scenario. How exactly does Clark account for his day when he's off saving the world of Superboy? The Adventures of Superboy is ultimately a very interesting footnote in Superman history. It starts off being quite a terrible show, and the cheese factor is high, but as it goes along, the scripts got better and better, and the actors improved with every season. By the third and fourth year, the series seemed to have really found a groove, managing to walk that tightrope between comic book silliness and serious drama quite well. It still has the problems that I mentioned earlier of not being quite kid-friendly enough to kids to be able to sit down and thoroughly enjoy it, but not being adult enough for adults to sit and watch it without their kids. And, as I pointed out many times throughout this episode, it does look very cheap in places. However, it scores in other places. It's a brisk watch at only 20 minutes per episode, and if you've never seen any of these, I would suggest you try and track some down and start watching from season two at the very least. Although I much prefer the third and fourth seasons, when Clark and Lana are purely ensconced in the Bureau of Paranormal Investigations. Who knows, had the series run a few more years, maybe they've met up with Mulder and Scully. Anyway, we'll take a quick break there, and I will be back with some email feedback in just a moment. After the theatrical cartoons, after the movie serials, a new medium helped define an icon for generations to come. The Adventures of Superman. 
Superman. Join Mike Zumo as the Man of Screen podcast enters the next phase with a year-long look at the 1950s television series The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves as Clark Kent and Superman. No comment until the time limit is up. Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane during season one. What are you afraid of? What are you hiding? And Noel Neal as Lois Lane starting in season two. Superman. What? Why did you wait? Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. Mr. Kent is Superman. John Hamilton as Perry White. Don't call me Chief! And Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson. I don't want excuses, I want action. So, follow along Mike and some possible guest hosts for an in-depth analysis of The Adventures of Superman, starting in June at supermanpodcastnetwork.com and manofscreen.podomatic.com. This is a job for Superman. I mean, I've got to find it. Our only piece of email feedback this week is simply titled The Palace of Glittering Delights. It's from a new listener called Chris Leatherman, which is delightful. It's always nice to have uh, new listeners, especially after all this time. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Chris. After happening upon the Palace of Glittering Delights, I've burned through most of the past episodes quickly. I've been a Hey Kids comics listener for about half a year, and only recently heard the 2014 episode, where a passing reference to episode one of Constantine was made, steering me over to the palace in turn. Well, it's very nice to have you, Chris. I do get um, I do get people saying I don't promote myself enough. Maybe I should be more, more Stan Lee-like, shouldn't I? Hey, true believers, if you like this, and why wouldn't you, you should pop on over to my feed on Two True Freaks, where I have other shows like this and that one. And I also do Fantasticast with Stephen Lacey, which is all about the Fantastic Four. And hey there, Fendi, uh, I also do the unwarranted... No, the underrated... No... The Overlooked uh, Night. I'll get that title right one day. With Michael Bailey and Listen to the Prophets with Paul and Bill. Go and check them out, true believer. Make mine Andy. <clears throat> I'm sorry, that gave me a sore throat. Anyway, I'm not good at self-promotion, am I? Uh, Chris continues the latest podcast covering the final episode of The Bionic Woman. Brought back some great memories of discovering the show in the mid-90s on the Sci-Fi Channel. I was in high school at the time, and my family didn't have a cable service that carried sci-fi, but many of my friends did have the channel, and I would catch episodes of Six Mill and the Bionic Woman sporadically at their houses after school whenever I could. None of my friends had any interest in 70s television, but they tolerated my bizarre fixation with these classic shows without much hassle. This continued for months until one of my friends instructed his parents to hire me to watch their house and take care of their pets for a couple of weeks while the whole family went on summer vacation. The timing of this corresponded to a 6 million Bionic Woman marathon, which I recorded on VHS. It also corresponded with the other teenagers in the neighbourhood having a few unauthorised drunken parties on my watch. Mm, sorry about that, folks. I watched these tapes for years, and after the DVD sets were released, I began replacing my old sci-fi channel tapes, complete with lousy, irritating 90s commercials. Although the DVD sets do look fantastic, I still kind of miss that old dusty pile of VHS tapes, Along with Six Mill and the Bionic Woman, I have also enjoyed your coverage of V, Airwolf, Knight Rider and the Incredible Hulk in particular. I wonder if you have plans to cover other such classics as Gemini Man, Gemini Man sorry, or, or Manimal on the podcast. Did these shows have much popularity in the UK? Gemini Man is mostly remembered to this day as Mystery Science Theatre 3000 fodder in the form of two episodes crammed together in the form of a movie entitled Riding with Death. Um, just to, to answer answer those excellent questions, Chris. Well, first of all, thank you for enjoying the episodes. 
on the stuff I've already done. Uh, regards to Gemini Man and Manimal. Gen Gemini Man first. I always get a little pang in the chest when I see Ben Murphy without Pete Doole. Because my first exposure to Ben Murphy was Alias Smith & Jones, which is a series I absolutely adore. Um, and I, just, I don't know. I just I, I always wanted to be starring Pete Doole and Ben Murphy. And seeing Ben Murphy on his own, just, you know, not right in some ways. Also, I didn't like Gemini Man as much as I liked The Invisible Man, which was kind of the same premise as Gemini Man, I believe, produced by the same guy, Harv Bennett. After that Incredible Man, Incredible Man. After The Invisible Man got axed, he just retooled it slightly and turned it into Gemini Man, which also didn't last particularly long. But I remember Invisible Man being quite good, thanks to David McCallum, who was, was yet to appear in anything where he isn't enjoyable. Um, so Invisible Man's a possibility. I don't know about Gemini Man. I may do. I've been, I'm, I've been, there's a list, there's a long list of things I'm interested in covering, like, um, you know, Robin of Sherwood, Blake Seven. Uh, I'm very interested in doing something with the Planet of the Apes TV series at some point. There's, you know, Space Above and Beyond, all these things that I want to do. And Manimal, you'll be happy to know, is on that list. I would love to do, time permitting, an episode about Glenn Air Larson's failed shows like Manimal, maybe an Auto Man one. Uh, maybe cover up. I do remember cover up being being good, but that um, that also had the problem, didn't it, of losing its lead actor John Eric Hexham halfway through. So anyway, uh, we'll continue with Chris's email. Also, your take on the absolutely lame Captain America TV movie was spot on. This, along with the similarly misguided Doctor Strange, are endlessly entertaining reminders of how silly television could be in the old days. Incidentally, I would rather watch the 1978 Doctor Strange movie than the 2016 version. Anyway, thanks for the many past hours of entertainment with this show as well as Hey Kids Comics, and I look forward to hearing more of both as I continue my frequent commutes from Columbus up to Cleveland, Ohio, and back. Thanks, Chris Leatherman. No, thank you, Chris. Thank you very much for emailing in. Uh, absolutely delightful to hear from you. Uh, you will be happy to know, depending upon the release schedules, that we Michael came on for summer and we did a new Hey Kids Comics all about the DC miniseries Identity Crisis. So that will either have just dropped or will be dropping very soon, depending on which way around I, uh, I edit these shows. We interrupt this regularly scheduled newscast for a special bulletin. Yeah, in between my recording that episode and tidying up the editing on it, two more emails arrived. So I figured I may as well include them in this episode. Bionic Endings and Spidey Beginnings came in from Chris Franklin. Hi, Andy. Hi, Christopher. Just a couple of thoughts on your last two episodes. As mentioned previously, The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman are two shows from my youth I haven't revisited as much as an adult, mostly due to me not catching them in reruns. I guess I wasn't aware Jamie got an ending, but I guess they kind of came short on that anyhow. Me, personally, I enjoy first and last episodes, even of shows I don't really care for. It's always fascinating to me to see how it begins and ends, even if there isn't a definitive ending. I've never understood TVX think TV execs thinking when it came to preferring an open-ended, non-conclusion show enders. If I see the last episode of something reruns, I assume the next one will be the pilot, so that gets me excited. Sorry to hear Jamie got her exciting farewell truncated just for syndication purposes. Bah! But great episode discussing it. Well, thank you very much. I'm always interested in doing stuff like that with, with shows that a lot of people don't tend to talk about. I mean, I have done Star Trek episodes and, and so forth, because, you know, I do love a bit of the original Star Trek. 
But um, I like doing episodes about the Bionic Woman and the Six Million Dollar Man, and Alias Smith and Dones, and Starsky and Hutch. I can listen to Star Trek podcast anywhere. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't listen to to that stuff anywhere else. So it's it does become one of those ego things, really. That well, if no one else is doing it, I'll do it kind of thing. So I'm glad people enjoy them even if they don't actually remember watching the shows. As for your commentary on the origin of Spider-Man, <laughs> I like that he's Mr. Hyphen as well. That is a seminal bit of TV for me. I recently covered the Spidey 67 series on Saturday Morning Fever with Rob Kerley and Brian Helia, and the origin episode has always been my favourite. No doubt my introduction to Spidey's origin even before reading it in the comics. Paul Souls is my Spider-Man. It's who I hear in my head, and he does a bang-up job here playing Peter's range of emotions to the hilt. I think the bit with the two street toughs comes from the retelling from Spectacular Spider-Man magazine, which which was published right before this episode went into production. We'll come back to that, Chris. To me, this is still my favourite adaptation of the origin. I enjoy the Maguire version, but I'm just too hooked on this one. I even forgive its many flaws and long drawn-out swinging sequences. The second and third season are lousy with these. Bakshi got the job because he could come in thousands of dollars less per episode than Gantre Lawrence, so he cut corners at every turn, which is why there's no wrestling sequence even though it's missed. Great episode, and any time you want to talk more animated Spider-Man, I'll be listening, Christopher. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, do you know, peek behind the curtain, originally that origin of Spider-Man episode was also going to feature the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends episode, the origin of the Super Friends, or the Spider Friends, or the Amazing Friends, or whatever it was called, and I just didn't have the time to do it. But I've still got that episode queued up, so maybe I should do it as a separate episode. Let's see what everyone thinks about that. Thank you for emailing in, Chris. Our next email came in uh, just at the 11th hour. Palace of Peter Spiderman. Uh, it's from Daniel Doherty. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Andy. Had a metric ton of fun listening to your Palace audio commentary for the origin of Spider-Man. You brought up a lot of great points about the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon, including the fact that later seasons are padded as hell. One thing you didn't mention is this episode seems to be more based on In the Beginning, a.k.a. The Origin of Spidey, from the black and white first issue of Spectacular Spider-Man magazine, rather than Amazing Fantasy 15. And this is what I mentioned just a minute ago when I said to Chris we'd come back to that later. Yes, you are both absolutely correct. This origin did dud, dudders, dudley, dudley more. Um, This origin did feel like it came... More from the black and white spectacular Spider-Man than Amazing Fantasy 15. As Chris pointed out, that did come out just prior to this episode being produced. So it was probably the one that they were looking at. Uh, I should have mentioned it. I knew it. And then I just slipped my mind. It's just one of those. When you're doing an audio commentary, if you've ever done an audio commentary on a podcast, you do know that you are deathly, deathly afraid of silences. So you just kind of ramble. And one of the things I've noticed that I do in audio commentaries is because you're rambling, you sometimes say things, um, you forget things, you forget things that were in your notes or whatever, and that was just one of those things that completely slipped my by. But you're absolutely right. Yes, the, the dialogue, as Daniel's about to mention in his email, yes, Uncle Ben is dead. And in a sense, it is really I who killed him. Yep, that's, that is all from the Black and White Spectacular Spider-Man. So thank you both for pointing that out. Personally, I think my favourite animated adi- adaptation sorry, of Spider-Man's origin is the Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends episode Along Came Spidey. 
That's a damn near perfect retelling of Amazing Fantasy 15 to the point where they seem to use the original pages as storyboards. Until next time, may your web shooters never run out of fluid Dan Doherty. Oh, well, maybe I should do that Amazing Friends episode instead. Or, or are we are we really fed up of of Spider-Man origins at the minute, as, as uh, seems to be suggested by Spider-Man Homecoming? Anyway, those two came in just as I was uh, putting this episode to bed. So thank you to Chris, Chris and Daniel for emailing in. Everybody else, if you want to email in your thoughts, feelings and requests, I'm not above doing requests on this show, uh, I would very much like to hear from you. Sorry, you can email me on akidscomics at virginmedia.com. As always, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a two true freaks presentation. And if you want to support any of the shows on the network, we have an Amazon link, which when you're buying your garbage from Amazon, you can click on that link and it knocks some pennies our way. Uh, Doesn't cost you anything extra, but it gives us enough to keep producing content like this. Next time, not a clue. Wing and a prayer at the minute, so we'll see what happens. Thank you very much for joining me, though, and I'll see you next time.